Thank you, Joe. Hi, everybody. My name is David A., and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am sober this day, and for this I am so thankful. And first of all, I want to thank your committee for inviting both Grace and myself uh, uh, to this wonderful weekend here in Wyoming and allow us to share us with you and you with us. And it has been, it has been wonderful right up to this second. <laughs> the only thing I know about being an alcoholic is how I drank, and the only thing I know about living sober is alcoholics and all. And since April the 20th of 1967, I have not found any reason whatever to leave Alcoholics Anonymous, to find an easier way to live sober, a more sociably acceptable way to live sober, a more fun way to live sober, nor a more desirable way to live sober. Thank God I haven't had to go to one of those action-reaction courses, concentration movement, related disorders institute, hang in there till your drawers fall off, baby. <laughs> Sexual dysfunction seminars. If you get as old as I am and stay sober as long as I have, you don't need a sexual dysfunction seminar. You need a memory course. <laughs> and the only way I know how to make an AA talk is that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. It was on the last Sunday in August of 1950, over 35 years ago, that a group of fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous invited me to an open meeting at the Suburban Group in Dallas, Texas. The Wednesday before that Sunday, I stumbled into one of Dallas, Texas's more affluent barbershops, and I sat down at this manicure's table. Now, I was more at myself that morning. Now, being more at myself in those days meant that I was drinking. I wasn't too drunk. I could sit in a chair for about ten minutes without falling out of it. I could navigate to and from the men's room and go out and get me another bottle of whiskey. I sat down, and this gal looked at me, and she said, David, and right there and then I should have known something's wrong. She didn't call me doctor. She said, David, I belong to a deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I looked at Edith, and I said, you're a liar. Nobody stays sober a year, maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, but certainly not a year. Now, Edith looked like a drunk ought to look like, you know. Sort of female-looking Joe over here, you know. <laughs> Built like him, too. <laughs> Her face wasn't real pretty. It looked like a truck had run over it and then backed over it to see if it had done a good job, you know. She had big bug eyes and gaps in her teeth, and God bless her, she'd been hit in the face so many times and fallen on her face so many times drunk, and her nose had been broken so many times, sort of laid on the left side of her face. And this is back in the days before the gals used to wear pantyhose and used to wear garter belts. And when she was drinking, hers always trailed behind her uniform. She'd trip and fall and drop all that manicured bottles. And back in those days, the ladies used to wear, you know, hose with the seams up the back. You'd always tell when Edith was drunk. The seams in the front and the front was in the back. Now, really, the best way I can describe Edith's looks as a drunk, in our part of the country, if your car is caught out in a hailstorm and it's pretty badly beaten up, right when you get your insurance check, if you have insurance, some wise buzzard says, don't get it fixed, let it sit out in the hot sun for about three or four weeks and all the dents will pop back out. <laughs> Her dents never pop back out. 
But God, she was a great gal, you know. And, but when and I'd been in that barber shop on infrequent occasions, and sometimes uh, uh, not as drunk as I was that morning, sometimes drunker, but always drinking. But when she told me she hadn't had a drink in a year and she's a bad drunk, that got my attention. And I started noticing her. And I noticed she changed. I noticed the first change. When she started to give me my manicure that morning, she was buffing my nails instead of my knuckles as she used to. And I looked up at her face and her lipstick was on her lips and not her eyebrows. And I sniffed her. And she didn't smell halfway between an Avon woman and a whiskey bottle. But more important, she stayed there. She didn't grab her purse and say, now I'll be back in 10 minutes and show up four months later, you know. <laughs> but I noticed the change, and the change was in her eyes. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have two kinds of eyes. We have those sad, sick eyes. And then we have those happy, dancing, laughing, sparkling, sober eyes. And then we got another kind of eyes, them glassy eyes. They'll get up behind one of these things and say, I haven't had a drink, you know, and then fall over. <laughs> But her eyes were jumping, and they were laughing, and they were sparkling, and she looked like she was having a lot of fun living sober. And then she introduced me to another gal at a manicurist in the same shop by the name of Moina. And she says, now, Moina here is my sponsor, and she has 15 months sober in this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had drunk far more whiskey with Moina than I ever had with Edith. And I looked at Moina, and I said, Moina, you're a bigger liar than Edith. We had a drink not, and she says, No, David, I have not had a drink of alcohol with you or anyone else or myself in 15 continuous months. Edith has not had a drink of alcohol in 12 continuous months. And we have an open meeting this Sunday, and it's open to the public to come. It's an open AA meeting of our group. So the public can come and see how an alcoholic can recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what Alcoholics Anonymous is and what Alcoholics Anonymous is not. And believe it or not, the greatest challenge that we have in the entire world of Alcoholics Anonymous right this second, that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members of Alcoholics Anonymous right now who do not or even have an inkling of what Alcoholics Anonymous is not, that we are not all things for all people. This is where our strength has, is, and will always lie. Our singleness of purpose, carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. We all have to remember about our membership, and today there's a lot of hassles, you know, about dual and dual, that we have to remember that members of Alcoholics Anonymous were, are, and will always be alcoholics, even though we may have other problems. And that covers it in the entire way. And if anybody else wants to change it up, it's just their ego that demands that they're different. Thank God that the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous did not get in. If I got up tonight and qualified, that in addition to everything else that I was obsessed to other than being an alcoholic, the dance wouldn't get started till 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> But I had many, many years to go before I to realize this. I certainly did. I certainly did. And she, and she said now, and, and, and when she said, we want you and your wife to come to that open A meeting, and she says that only members of Alcoholics Anonymous will participate in the meeting. And she says, although we do not give any medals or honors or awards for our sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, it has nothing to do with AA, has nothing to do with the meeting. After the meeting is totally over with, 
Then they have a sort of a social and they have cake and punch and ice cream and coffee and tea for those who have one or more years of continued sobriety. And as I said before, she said that we would like for you and your wife to come to that AA meeting and stay for that social function or birthday party afterwards. And I thought that the only reason that people such as you would invite someone such as me to come to one of your AA meetings or your AA functions is that you needed to have some good-looking, outstanding, and successful professional man come and upgrade you lepers in the community. <laughs> and I was glad to come help you. So I went home and I told my wife, Grace, and God, she was thrilled because people had long since quit asking us to come around. My wife, Grace, used to ask me, why isn't it we're not asked to the outdoor barbecue, square dances, round dances, uh, swimming pool parties, nightclub suppers, 42, 84 parties, card parties, pin the tail on the donkey, whatever drunks do on Saturday night. And I said, it's you, it's you. <laughs> I said, every time we're asked to go out on Saturday night, you start on me on the Monday before. You start screaming, you're not going to drink, you're not going to get drunk, are you? And then you wake me up out of a sound sleep, 5 o'clock the next morning screaming, did you hear what I said? <laughs> And then you keep it up Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night. And what a tremendous price society's had to pay. Those who love us, those who hate us, those who don't even care we exist on this earth. What a tremendous price those people have had to pay to find out that the more you scream at a drunk about his drinking, the more we're going to drink. I said, and furthermore, when we get to where we're supposed to get to, before I can even park the car, you're out of the car. You run in, you grab the host, the hostess. You chase them out of the kitchen, through the den, the backyard, and the alleys, and the neighborhood, and the bushes, screaming, Don't you give him a drink. <laughs> Woman, you're sick, that's what's wrong with you. But through tear-filled eyes, she said, We're going to meeting, and I said, Yes. And so that Sunday morning, I got up at 5.30 in the morning to get ready to go to an AA meeting, 5.30 that afternoon. <laughs> Well, now, what does a good self-respectful drinking drunk do when he gets up 5.30 on Sunday morning? Drinks whiskey, that's what he does. <laughs> Let's face it, it's very simple. Golfers golf, fishermen fish, drunks drink. There's no big mess. I started sucking on a brand new bottle of whiskey. You know how it is when you take that first drink? That gets your breathing started. Then that second drink regulates your breathing. Then that third drink goes down to both heels and just sets you there. Now you're ready to do some real drinking, aren't you? And I'm drinking and I'm looking up at the birds and the bees and the trees and I'm hearing the neighbors screaming, Johnny, get dressed, we'll be late for church. And I said, oh, them sick folks. They don't know what living really is. Then I start doing my meditating and praying. Now we hear it in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time that due to the innate nature of our spiritual illness, our selfishness and our self-centeredness, that we care very little for God and prayer and meditation. I disagree with you because I used to thank God for the grain. I thank God for the farmers that harvested the grain. I thank God for the distillers that made that grain and that wonderful elixir called alcohol. We hear it in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time that due to the, once again, our spiritual illness, our vanity, our pride, our ego, that we care very little for the common welfare of our fellow man. I disagree with you. Because I used to ask God on a continuing basis to show a special love and kindness and concern for those people who thought that drinking alcohol was sinful. I said, God, if they could just learn how to control it and enjoy it like I was doing, 
that they would find out that right after breathing in and out, it's the greatest gift man's been ever given. Amen. Took another drink. I drank about a half a fifth of that whiskey and put the other half a fifth in the trunk of my car because I knew at that time that I was going to be required to have another drink of alcohol, not knowing the exact reason until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, that until and unless that alcoholic is willing to find out what's wrong with that alcoholic, that alcoholic will never be able to find out what can get right with that alcoholic. And I went in and I bathed and I shaved and I put on everything rich and nice looking to impress those sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Put on a beautiful brand new tailor-made suit, white on white monogram shirt, monogram handkerchief, monogram tie, monogram drawers. Put on my diamond ring, my diamond watch, and the trademark of every good, self-respectful, high-rolling drinking drunk. A brand new pair of custom-made alligator shoes. I look just like a used car salesman. <laughs> and at 10.30 in the morning, I'm out in my long Roadmaster Buick honking the horn. And out comes Grace with the rollers in her hair. And she has on, it's that all-your-fault kimono that they just love to live in and dwell in and cry in and crawl in. If I hadn't have married you, I'm down to this. And she looked at me and she says, what do you, where she, you know, one of them deals the way they went, where she'd lost the string around the middle, you know, and it's pinned together with a big baby diaper pin. And she's pulled all the threading and the padding and the fuzzings and the buttons off the front, and the front's just covered with tear stains and cigarette burns. And she looks at me and she says, what do you want, drunk? Meanwhile, all the neighbors had gathered out. And her side is lined up over here, and my side is lined up over here. And I can still hear the fine ladies of the neighborhood saying, Isn't it a shame that such a beautiful and fine lady and the mother of two beautiful little boys married to such a sorry, no-good drunk like him? And my bunch over here hollered out, Let her have it, David. Let her have it. And that used to be the weekend entertainment in every neighborhood we lived in. We moved 24 times before we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes at midnight, sometimes at high noon, and sometimes at daybreak, sometimes ahead of the sheriff, sometimes with the sheriff, sometimes behind the sheriff, just kept moving. And I said, let's go to the meeting. And she said, doesn't get started for seven more hours drunk. And with that, she turned on her heels and went in the house. And that started seven tough hours because I violated a very serious code in my drinking. Here it was Sunday, and I'm living in dry country, and I'm starting on the only bottle of whiskey I had. I drank half of it, knew I was going to have to have me a drink later on. But I was one of those kind that I, I, once I started drinking, I just rolled it all away. One of the biggest problems I had before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, really not before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, those days people used to pull me off my drunks green. I wasn't through drinking. And I'd cry and I'd lower my head and I'd paw my foot like a wild bull and, you know, and make, make promises and, and, and that's okay, we believe you. And off I'd flee and continue to drink because I was a disappearing kind of drunk. Not on purpose. I'd start to roll one of them good drunks. I'm talking about three, six, nine, ten months a year. Ain't no sense in drinking for four minutes and quitting, you know. And, you know, you God, that just gets your whistle wet. And, you know, and, and I was at this, I'd end up with places and people and things, not knowing how I got there, not on purpose. I remember one time I was on nine months. 
Nobody knew where I was. My mother, my father, race, my children, my patients, my enemies, my friends. Nobody knew where I was. I come running in a house with the same clothes on. I've been in, I guess, about two months. And I come in and I, and I run in. I ask my wife this brilliant question. Did anybody call? <laughs> and that does not make for good marriage relationships, I'll tell you. And so I've just found me, a, and, and, and then furthermore, my ego demanded that I take my wife to that AA meeting, and I'll tell you the reason. Just in case it's those two ladies who said they were alcoholic, and they invited us to come to where there's going to be a group of people who say they may be alcoholic. If those people who said they were alcoholic and sober, even suspicion that I might have a small little minor problem with alcohol, I wanted to bring them the reason and show them the reason, and that's my wife. And I knew that if I go to the bootlegger or call a cab or run off somewhere, that I'd blow the deal. And them drunks would be on my uh, heel of my shoe just like gum on the heel of the shoe. You see, when I got out of the service in 1947, the first time, those drunks and alcoholics and honest, they tried to net me. They tried to net me in 1948. They tried to net me in 1949. They tried to net me in the early part of 50. And finally, in August of 50, they thought they set the trap. And, I, and so I knew I blew the deal, so I just found enough to nurse me along. And finally, at 4.30, I honked the horn, here she came, and off we went. And we walked on into this meeting place, and there must have been about 80 members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and their wives and the kid, and their poodle or two jumping up and down, and everybody smoking cigarettes and hugging and kissing and grinning and laughing and jumping. And I looked around at those idiots, and I said, By God, if they're alcoholics and they ain't drinking, they're on dope. <laughs> And then I looked around and I saw all them signs and I says, my God, I'm in a kindergarten. And then I saw, but for the grace of God, and my head ducked. Because I knew at that time that I was not living according to the dictates of God's will for a human being. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, even though many of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous without a full string of life, that after we get physically separated from alcohol and we get just a little physically comfortable that deep down inside every one of us know this. If this be not the case, then Alcoholics Anonymous would not be the finest, the most precious, the most comfortable, the most desirable recovery program and fellowship for an alcoholic that the world has seen, is seen, or ever will see. Because Alcoholics Anonymous does something that organized, formalized religion has not been able to do, is not able to do, will never be able to do. Psychiatry has not, is not, cannot. Medicine has not, is not, cannot. Social agencies, government has not, is not, cannot. Alcoholics Anonymous reaches down into the depths, the very depths of a human being. This little thing that comes with each and every one of us when we're born and this little thing that after we get comfortable that says deep from within, says thank you little alcoholic for not taking a drink of alcohol today. Thank you little alcoholic for finding a way to have a reasonable good night's sleep. But more important, thank you little alcoholic for finding a group of people who love you no matter what you have done, what you are doing, or what you ever will do. And this is where the great power of our society lies, the freedom of the to come from the inside 
outward. The freedom to be a part of society. The freedom to be a part of the human race that came with every one of us when we were born. God given. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we just renew that contact. But it's the scars in between from the time that every one of us who may be alcoholics, those who love an alcoholic, blood can and emotionally tax. The Alamon, the Alateen, those who are not in Alamon today that are yet to come in Alateen, the alcoholic who says, I'm one of these that firmly believes that every alcoholic that's drinking right this second needs to hear the AA message at least once. That'll keep us plenty busy. I got news for you. That'll keep us real busy. But I had many, many years to go before I was to realize this. I certainly did. And then I looked around and I saw what I then believed and still believed to be the most dangerous sign that you can put in an AA facility or an AA group, and that's the one that says, think. Because it's dangerous for our kind of folks to think, drunk, sober, or dead. And if you don't believe it, you pat a little drunk on the head and tell him how good he's doing in AA and out of AA and let him get over in the corner and start thinking for himself and he'll get drunker than an $8 bill on you, I'll tell you. They blew a whistle or hollered or did something and everybody went in the meeting and I went and I sat on the back row to look those people over and see what kind of help I could afford to give them. And the first talker got up there, and it's a woman, and my God, and, and I fell out of my chair because that's the lionest, cheatingest person I'd ever been around in my life. And that lady had nerve enough to stand up in front of 80 people and say she was sober, sane, in her right mind, and had not had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I jumped up and I said, you're a liar. And somebody said, shut up. <laughs> you know how a drinking drunk answers you when you tell him to shut up? Make me. <laughs> Well, they had enough there to make me, I'll tell you. <laughs> and then that woman started talking about a miracle, 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 miracle. What seemed to me like ten minutes on the one word, miracle. And I couldn't stand it. And after I got sober, realized maybe maybe two seconds or three, I jumped up, and this time I got up on the chair. And I pointed a finger and I screamed, Tell it, you big liar. And this time the put down and the shut up was firmer. And then that lady said, As a result of the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, she called Christ back in her life. And if anyone who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, unless they found that Christ is the truth and Jesus is their power greater than themselves, that there was no way in this world that they could stay sober at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said to myself at that time, what a heck of a trick to pull on a Jew. <laughs> that y'all invited me to this deal to convert me? And if this is what you were, I needed to drink real bad. <laughs> I'm asked all the time all over this country and Canada and everywhere else, how come there are not any more Jews and Alcoholics Anonymous and what there is? Well, you see, it's very, very simple. Because, you see, the way people have their noses fixed and their names changed, you don't know who you'll sit next to in an AA meeting. <laughs> but my mind closed and I didn't hear anything else that was said at that meeting because I violated a very serious code in my drinking and my living and my existence because I started drinking with, working with, get drunk with, or fighting with, cheating with, the black and the white wino, which was then Skid Row, is Skid Row today, and I guess it'll always be Skid Row in Dallas, Texas. And I've lived on three Skid Rows in my lifetime, one for over six years and one for over four years, but the last one for 14 months was the toughest. And I'm not going to stand up here and share life on Skid Row with you, but the Skid Row that I lived on, there's no night and there's no day. There's no sky. There's no moon. There's no stars. There's no sun. There's no clouds. 
There are no seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. There's total inner and outer blackness and darkness. And the best way I can describe that kind of an existence is just bodies and feet. And you don't care if you live, you don't care if you die, you don't care if you bathe, you don't care if you don't bathe, you don't care if you work, you don't care if you don't work. You don't care if you sleep, you don't care if you stay awake, you don't care if you change clothes, you don't care if you change clothes, you just don't care. Now, an alcoholic cannot stay on skid rope. An alcoholic has got to get off the skid rope because an alcoholic will lie about his drinking. He'll lie, he won't share his bottle, and if you lie about your drinking and you don't share your bottle down on the road, you're not long for this earth, I don't mind telling you. And I did not have to be down there because I came from one of the finest homes that God ever put on this earth. As a son, I was blessed with the most beautiful mother and father that any son could wish for, hope for, or desire for. A mother and father who dedicated their lives to give to the two sons that were born to that marriage everything that was denied them when they were growing up. And I being the oldest, and if one of the sons is going to be an alcoholic, I don't know of a better deal. When you've got a mother and father that's willing to go to any length to keep you from hurting and keep you from suffering and keep you from ruining the so-called, quote, family image. Fourteen and a half years before I got sober. And the religion my mother and father were born in, lived in, died in, very devout. They lit the candles of the dead and said the prayers of the dead for seven consecutive days. And on the eighth day, their son was no longer alive. He was dead as far as they were concerned. And that's the greatest thing that they could have done for them. That was total relief. And after I got sober and I wrote my four-step inventory and I'm writing about my resentment and my resentment and my hate against my mother and father for the way they treated me in respect to my brother. And then I stopped and realized that up until the time my mother and father prayed me dead, they were the worst parents that I could have ever possibly had because they never allowed me to fall. They broke every fall. Thank God they did. They found some relief and they found some relief. And that's the way from that time on as I'm going through life and I'm chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Those who would protect me, those who would bail me out, those who would not let me suffer. And I got down to finally, and many years later, I got down to me and my problem, and I couldn't handle my problem, and I had to, and nobody would take my problem for me because I got down to me to where I either had to have something to do with that problem or else die drunk, one of the two. I'm just telling David's story, and I'm not telling anybody else's story. And thank God my mother and father, I could not fault my mother and father because they were doing the best they knew how. If they'd have known any different, it would have been another story altogether, but they didn't know any different. And I had many, many years to go. And I started working down on Skid Row as a youngster, ten and a half years of age, started drinking bay rum and wine, that's the standard fire. And later on, as I grew older physically, get more money in my pocket, and I could go from that bay rum and that wine to that good stuff, never miss a lick, and come back down from that good stuff down to Gypsy Road and Thunderbird, never miss a lick. Because I don't know about anybody in here. I was not drinking it because of the price of it. I wasn't drinking it because of the smell of it. I wasn't drinking it because it'll make you better this, better that. I was drinking it because I liked what it did to me and with me and for me when it got in and down and through me. And I liked what it allowed me to do to and with you or against you when it got in and down and through me. And little did I realize that the first drink of alcohol I took, it affected my head. It says, David, every chance you're going to get, 
you're going to take a drink of alcohol to reproduce that initial effect. And I didn't know this. I learned a lot of other skinny things down on Skid Row. Never get you back up against a wall that didn't have a back door or didn't have a window that you could jump out of. You drank that wine like I did, you'd understand that. If you smoke or eat anything, keep both hands free so you can hit and run. I've always been five foot six. I was born five foot six. And I drink that juice and I'd be seven foot tall. I've had thousands of fights, never one of one. My nose has been where my navel is. My navel's been where my rider. I've been all rearranged. When I was 14, 15, 16 years of age, run off and joined Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus. And back in those days, the Ringling Show was the finest and the largest and the best under canvas in this whole world. Oh, God, and, and they'd come to a town like, you know, St. Louis and Kansas City and Louisville, Kentucky and Atlanta, Georgia and, and, and Richmond, Virginia, and the animals would drag the wagons through the town in the Calliope, and they had the finest Wild, wild West show you ever had. I never will forget, and when I would, now this will date me, but there's some in here that may have heard about it, and they had the most wonderful cowboy in the world called Tom Mix. And that beautiful horse that he used to ride, boy. And then they had old Hoot Gibson with them old spike heel cowboy boots. Them days they wore boots you could put into a stirrup, not on a gas pedal, you know. And, and God and, 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 and Bob Steele, that little monkey, and they'd do all that bareback riding and side riding and shooting and all that kind of stuff. And the Indians would come out. And that would be heaven. And all the clowns and everything would be heaven for a youngster and teenager. My, but not me. I went because you could drink and because you could fight. And I look around here and I don't see any circus-looking drinkers. And I learned the most beautiful concoction drink in the circus that's ever been devised by a man called Green Lizard, circus style. Tremendous drink. Elixir of sodium bromide and lucky tiger hair tonic. And you know, I used to drink that stuff and I'd see Bambi and those animals long before Walt Disney ever put them on screen. <laughs> but I'm trying to live three codes of living. I'm trying to live the code of living that society was demanding I live to go to school and become a useful human being and become of use to my fellow man and my community and not end up in jails and goonie roosts and all them other places. And then I was trying to live the code of living. My mother and father wanted me to live because they had all the money. And if you had already been all the trouble I had been in, was in, and getting ready to get into, it takes a lot of money to get you out so you can get back in it again. And then I'm trying to live the code of living that alcohol was demanding on my life and you're way ahead of me. You know which one won out. And so here I am, I'm sitting on that back row, that woman talking about Christ. There's no back door, there's no window to jump out of, and I'm wanting to drink bad, and I've got me a half a fifth of whiskey in the trunk of my car, and every time I stood up to walk through 80 people to go out to my car to get that bottle of whiskey, it looked like 80 people stood up, turned around, looked at me, pointed fingers, and said, shut up and sit here, and this is for you. And I hated every member of Alcoholics Anonymous that was in that meeting and the horse and wagon that brung them to them. I don't mind telling you. And I made a deal right there with those people in Alcoholics Anonymous that unless they were going to pour me a drink of whiskey right there and then in that meeting or let me go out to my car and take a drink and come back into the meeting, that I was not going to listen to anything that those people had to say. And that deal darn near killed me. And it wasn't until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous 17 years later, and I pray one day at a time to stay sober one day at a time. And they shoved a book in my hand called Alcoholics Anonymous. 
May I remind every member of Alcoholics Anonymous in this meeting right this second, every member of Al-Anon, Alateen, and if there's anyone here who is our friends and are not members of any of the fellowship, that it is the only book in print with the two words Alcoholics Anonymous on it. There's not another book like it, greater than, more than, less than. If it's not it, it's not it. And I don't know, and you may say, why Al-Anon? If one will read Al-Anon's fifth tradition, which is threefold, the second triad, and we practice the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You betcha. There are 52 self-help groups in the world today that are now using the twelve steps adapted for their own use. Because Alcoholics Anonymous does not have a patent nor a lock on God. The traditions are ours. But there is one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous cannot give to anyone else. It's ours, and ours only, and that is our name. Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a registered trademark. And I don't know about you, but I wonder how many stop and realize that when we say we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, how many stop and realize when we tell anyone, whether whoever it is, in our groups, out of our groups, anywhere, that we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, how many stop and realize that when we say that, that we're the results of what's in that book? Because in the book in its entirety is where the entire recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous is, not out of context. And I don't know about you, but tonight when I retire, after I take my 10-step inventory of this day, and I turn to the God of my understanding in the 11th step and thank Him for allowing a monkey like me to live this day in spite of me sober this day, I ask myself, what kind of member of Alcoholics Anonymous have I lived this day? Am I one of these who's had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps? Am I one of these who has gotten into the traditions and the principles and the concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous as a total way to live for a human being? Have I lived this kind of life this day? Am I one of these who knows all the commas and all the phrases and quote the pages and the periods and everything else? and look real good on the outside and has got a concrete block in my belly big enough to land a 747. Have I lived this kind of life this day that if anyone knows that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, any place, anywhere, and I'm asked to share myself at a drunk, a sick, drinking drunk at the bedside, or even one who is having a pretty tough day living sober this day, have I lived the kind of life that that alcoholic that's drinking says, yes, I want to pick up my bed and walk with you. And each night as I take that inventory, I find that I fall far short. And what the true benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous and the blessings that Alcoholics Anonymous can give to any alcoholic, I certainly do. And I'm only talking about David and no one else. I certainly do. And thank God it's that way. That gives me, I know that I'll never reach perfection. Never reach perfection one day at a time. Just grow and try to grow along spiritual lines. But I still had many, many more years to learn that. I certainly did. And I never will forget when they shoved the book in my hand. They, had, they used to call me boy. <laughs> they said, now boy, you see that paper cover on that book? What does it say? And I said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, and, that's, and this was the second edition, not the present. And right underneath it used to have the circle with the triangle in the middle of the cover. And it says, you know what that is? And I said, no. Said, well, that's the logo of Alcoholics Anonymous. That means recovery, unity, and service circumscribed by the globe. The same stru structure of that little 
three-legged stool that they go from conference to conference here. And they said, boy, now that's the logo of Alcoholics Anonymous. The logo of Alcoholics Anonymous is not the praying hands, crosses, Bibles, chains, and this and that. It's just simply recovery of the base, unity, service, circumscribed by the whole group. And then they said, what did it say down at the bottom of that book? I said, it says it's the basic text of recovery. They said, that's it. You start from that. And you start to grow. Then they said, now to open up the book and turn the next page. And I did. And that's a fly leaf and there's nothing on it. It's vacant. And one of them said, what's on there? I said, nothing. And he said, you know why nothing's on there? I said, no, sir. He said, because you don't know nothing. <laughs> he said, if you knew anything about living sober, you wouldn't need this book. <laughs> then he said, turn the next page. And he said, what is that? Well, I said, it's got the same thing on that page, what it's got on the cover. He said, no, it doesn't. He said, that's you. You just look at things. You never really look. You just observe. What does it say down at the bottom? Is it the same song? I said, no. It says AA World Services Incorporated. He says, that's us. That's every member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We own it. It's ours. It's ours. Then he says, turn the next page. And I did. And he said, what year was this book printed? And I told him. He said, now I'm going to give you the key. And I said, what's that? He said, David, there are hundreds of thousands of alcoholics that come to alcoholics such as you that have tried to change what's in that book. He said, the key is let what's in that book change you. And he said, now when you start reading that book, don't you open up the end of that book and start reading the story at the end of the book because you're not the end of your problem. And don't open it up in the middle of the book and start reading the middle of the book because you're not in the middle of your problem. You start from the front. And you read everything, the appendices, because everything fits in. And so I went, and I thought they were going to give me a test, you know. <laughs> so I went home, and I started reading the book, and I got to the doctor's opinion, and being a part of the medical profession, that interests me greatly. And I started, and with great interest, and here's a little physician by the name of Dr. William Silkworth, who treated over 40,000 alcoholics before AA ever got started, and over 10,000 after AA got off the ground. And Dr. Silkworth was a tremendous, tremendous friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Dr. Silkworth, in my own personal belief, writes two and a half pages in that book of the finest writing about our malady as we understand it in AA that's ever been put in print. It has to be because it stood the acid of time. Today it is the basis for every successful treatment modality for an alcoholic in the world today. And Silky writes that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. My God, when I read that sober, that shot the balloon out of the air. I thought I was drinking because the kind of woman I was married to. I thought I was drinking because of them two rotten kids. I thought I was drinking because the Republicans was in and the Democrats was out. I thought I was drinking because of my color, my size, my hair, my religion. I thought I was drinking because I was recalled back in the service. No, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And although we will admit it is elusive, we will admit it is injurious. There comes a time when we cannot differentiate the true from the false, and then the alcoholic believes his life to be the only one. Well, doesn't everybody get drunk on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, St. Patty's Day when the sun goes up, the sun goes down, the sun just lays there? A drunk can be passed out two weeks on the floor. You wake him up kicking, been drinking two beers, and he'll fall back down. Never one, never three, never five. We believe, we believe it. Silky writes, we're restless, irritable, and discontented. I never was restless, irritable, and discontented when I was drinking. I was drunk. 
It's in between drunks that I was restless, terrible, and discontented. And until we can again experience the ease and comfort which seems to come at once after taking a few drinks. Drinks that we see others taking with impunity. Grace used to ask me, why don't you drink like Herman? I said, I don't want to drink like Herman. I don't even like Herman. She said, why don't you drink like so-and-so? I said, fine, bring so-and-so over to the house Saturday night. So-and-so would come over. And I'd start feeding him liquor and alcohol like I'm drinking. Come on, don't drink like a little girl and a baby. Drink. Hour and a half later, so-and-so would be passed out on his back on my living room rug. And my foot would be on his navel. And I'd look down at him and you want me to drink like this bum here? <laughs> and Grace used to say, why don't you drink like a man? I said, I'm drinking with both fists. What else you want me to do? Oh, here's a beauty. People used to say, David, don't you drink anymore. I didn't need any more. What I was drinking was doing the job. <laughs> but once we succumb to the desire again, and unfortunately many of us will, here comes the thing that separates our kind from the so-called social drinker. I was a social drinker. Drank with anybody. Normal drinker. I don't know what a normal drinker is. I don't know. A normal drinker whiskey used to be for me. Get a pint of whiskey, knock the cap off, suck her down in the swallower, and throw her away and go get another one, you know. <laughs> But once we succumb to desire again, it sets up this phenomenon of craving for alcohol. My God, how my body craved alcohol when I was drinking. And that's where I found out what was wrong with me at that meeting over 35 years ago. Remember I told you, I got up at 5.30 in the morning and started drinking. Full well knowing that I was going to be required to have another drink. No, it wasn't what people were telling me that the reason that I was drinking because I was sorry that I was no good, that I was a common drunker, that I'd rather be drunk than sober. I did not know it, but I had a twofold illness of mind and body. A mental obsession so powerful that condemned me and all of us alcoholics to drink against our own will. No matter how many promises, no matter how many pledges, whatever it is, and a physical compulsion that condemns us to die if we continue to drink. And this is what was wrong with that meeting. No, it wasn't what that woman said about Christ at that meeting. It wasn't what anyone talked about the miracle of God's grace through their sobriety of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was not the Lord's Prayer at the end of that meeting. No, my body was screaming out for a drink of alcohol which took place in precedence before life itself, before family, before job, before country, before sanity, before anything, and before sobriety above all and anything else in the world that will condemn us to either stop drinking or die drunk. One of the two. And there's no gray area and there's no if. And I could not tell you this unless I have experienced it in my own life. And that's what was wrong with me. And that's what was wrong with me. And remember I told you that uh, uh, people never, they pulled me off my drunks green, you know what I mean, and I had to run her all the way out to find out that I couldn't drink anymore and still live. And still live. And that's just David's story. And I won't tell you, don't you do like I did, and so you won't have to go through all the suffering I did. I'll tell you right now, I drank like I drank, and you drank like you drank, and you hurt like I hurt, and I hurt like I hurt. And that's what gets us here, and that's what wants us to stay here. And then as we begin to share the nature of our stories, then we can come to see the nature. I may not have yet lost the power of matter of choice in accepting or rejecting that drink, but I'm certainly headed that way. And it is our responsibility to share this with anyone, anywhere, if and when they ask. But I had many, many years to go before I realized this. I certainly did. And I said it sets up this phenomenon of craving. 
And then we go through that well-known spree and we end up remorseful screaming to anybody to listen to us. We'll never do it again, yet I did it again and again and again and again and again and again. And here's where Dr. Silkworth lays out our recovery program so beautifully and so simply when he says, until such a person experiences an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. Well, how in Alcoholics Anonymous do we experience an entire psychic change? As a result of our ideals that are firmly grounded in a power greater than ourselves. And how in Alcoholics Anonymous do we firmly ground our ideals in a power greater than ourselves? Steps 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then our two co-founders, Bill and Dr. Bob, knew that we brought about by great strength something of our, not our own doing. Well, and then Dr. Silkworth tells us what will happen to us when such a person has experienced this entire type of change, a person who is doomed helpless and hopeless and has so many problems they'll never be able to comprehend how they'll ever be able to solve them, can now very easily control their desire for alcohol, the only thing being that they'd be willing to follow a few simple rules. Well, Dr. Silkworth, being a non-alcoholic, he says rules. Us drunks, we don't like rules. We don't like regulations. We don't like to be told what to, what not to. We just say suggestions. But after you've been in AA a while and sober continuously, them suggestions become rules, you know. Well, after that meeting was over with and everybody goes for their coffee and the cake and the ice cream, not me, I ran through them 80 folks like a tornado. And I got out to the trunk of my car and I got that half-fifth of whiskey out. Now, I don't know about anybody here in this meeting, but I drank that half-fifth down in two swallows. Now, that's the way I drank alcohol. I didn't put it in the brandy glass and run around sniff it four or five hours and burn candles and incense and listen to Lawrence Welch. And I didn't put an inch in a glass and nine inches of something else and a straw and a fruit and a cherry and suck on it for about four hours. To me, that's sick drinking. I drank a drop down that hole. You know how it is when you want to drink of alcohol so bad, my God, it's killing you. And you take a drink and it runs down into your Adam's apple and it gets down in your chest well and starts pulsating like arrows. Then it runs down in your tummy and then runs around your navel nine or ten times. And then it starts down your right and your left leg cruising for the five toenails on each foot, just like, just like those racers at the Indianapolis Speedway, you know. And it gets down them toenails and makes a U-turn and starts coming back up. And it gets halfway between the knee and the ankle and the head says, I wonder if it'll make her all the way up. I better drop another one down there to meet it. And so the trick is when you're drinking is to have one going down and one coming up. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Now, until one has experienced the need to have that feeling fulfilled and one has experienced that feeling being fulfilled, we'll never be able to comprehend what we're talking about. And that's where the great power of our society lies. You mean you too, you too. Well, let me tell you what happened to me. I dropped that juice down. I quit perspiring. My, my hair laid back down. My toes went back in those alligator shoes. I ran up the steps, got a hold of the oldest sober member in that group, got to arguing about the quality of y'all's fellowship, and he said something to me, and I hit him. And when I was drinking, I was bad to hit folks. Taller than me, shorter than me, fatter than me, skittier than me. And two of his AA babies joined in, and we started to fight. And I'll tell you right now, as far as I was concerned, that fight was a lot better than that AA meeting. I don't mind that. And I just whooping the dickens on them two little sober drunks, and they did an unfair thing. They ran in two more the size of the outside linebackers on any professional football team. And finally, four of them picked me up bodily, two on each side, and threw me right out of that AA group. As I'm flying through the air, one of them said, we don't need your kind here. 
And another one said, and furthermore, you're too young to be an alcoholic. And I stood on that yard that Sunday evening, drunk and belligerent with my fist clenched, screaming to anybody that would listen to me that I would never come back to this Christ soul-saving organization as long as I live, that I was not an alcoholic, I was too young an alcoholic. But the next 17 years, now what I'm about to say, I am only telling David's story. I have been in AA too long now, and I do not make fun at anyone else's expense, and no way critical or to hurt anybody's feelings. But the next 17 years, everything that could possibly happen to a human being happened to this human being. And the only three things never did happen to me, getting ready to get on a drunk, on a drunk, coming off a drunk right to this second, is I never did willfully murder another human being, fall in love with another man, or die drunk. Other than that, it all happened. this wonderful gal, you know, and when we got married, she didn't realize she's married an alcoholic. And so when we got married, we did not start to build a marriage, start to build a booby trap, one that could go off on any month or any year. And I was recalled back into the service as a naval dental officer, didn't have to go, but it gave me a chance to get way away from her and my creditors and everybody else, and it gave me a chance to run, and I went in with a combat marine division, got more trouble than more trouble than anybody could get into. Christmas Day, 1954. I'm laying in a prison with a leg iron locked around my right leg and a chain welded to the leg iron, the other end of the chain welded steel cot, and a full-legged steel cot immersed in concrete, and the armed guards around me 24 hours a day daring me to move. And I didn't know how I got there till I got there. And I was to lay like that for one solid year. That's four I was tried. And uh, they only had room for 128, and it was under a code name, and the word was, when you got there, you were never going to leave there. It was later investigated in dynamite and bulldozed. It's worse than any concentration camp ever been devised by man, and worse than any PW camp that's ever been devised by man. Absolutely harmed. And the only thing that kept me alive was two things. An alcoholic in total confinement can occasionally find something to drink. <laughs> and the next thing was total hate. And when I got out, get out, I'm going to kill everybody that's been connected with this deal getting me locked up. Looking for that day to get even to get even. And I heard one of the greatest lines here not long ago by an old friend of Bill, Opostrophe and Anit, Big John. Big John said this, you hear it all the time, I'm going to get even with the police and I'm going to get even with my ex-wife and my ex-husband, my dog, my kids and everybody else. Bill said, if you're going to get, I mean, John said, if you're going to get even with anybody, get even with the ones that have been good to you. But it kept me alive, that hate. And I've been laying like this on Christmas Day for seven and a half months, and because of my insolence and my uncooperativeness and being plain ugly, four and a half of that seven and a half months was on straight bread and water. And here it is Christmas Day, and I'm hating society because I know hundreds of people who have done far worse than me. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo. Why me? And they're, they're, they're running free, and I'm locked up. And in comes this little orderly with the Christmas dinner. And I've been in lots of places where they don't give you knives and forks to give you a spoon. 
and they count the spoon before they let you go in your little iron doggy house, if they'll let you out of the iron doggy house. And I've been in a lot of places where they don't give you nothing. And you learn how to eat soup with your fingers. There's no big deal in dream. There's chicken in there. And here he comes, and he's with the Christmas dinner. He's got this tray, and he's grinning, and he's saying, Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. And I'm so full of Christmas spirit and love for my fellow man, I say, Ho, 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 you know what? He said, Well, here it is, you ungrateful son of a gun. And when he handed it to me, I was so thankful, I picked up the tray, and I hit him right in the face with it. And my Christmas gift for that on that Christmas day was 45 more straight days on bread and water. Now, that's what you call a bad day. I have not had a day that bad since I have been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got out of that by hook or crook. People took their lives as a result of my involvement with them and used my father's good name and anybody else I could, but I did have to lay like that for better than a year. I got out, finally got out, and those amends were tough because they had to do with people taking their lives and leaving families and children. And finally talked Grayson to taking us back, and we started to move and move. We decided to move out to the panhandle of West Texas and raise our two boys in a Christian environment. I don't know if any of y'all ever lived in a little town of 3,500 that lives in a Christian environment. That's a town that votes dry and drinks wet. And I was drinking every day, and I got up to where I weighed 260 pounds, and my blood pressure was the high that every time my pulse would beat, my hair would stand straight up and pump like an oil well. And I had a fat doctor friend lived in the town about 30 miles away, and I go to see him, and he says, My God, David, you look sick. Uh, uh, but he said, Before I examine you, let's have a drink. And so he poured a drink, and he took a drink, and I took a drink, and that's a good doctor to go to, you know, when you're drinking. And finally, he put the air on the arm and ran it up, and he says, My God, David, it's a miracle you're alive. Your blood pressure's so high, but the reason it's so high is because you eat too much. And the reason you eat too much, and, and that's the reason you're so fat. And the reason you eat too much is because you don't have any guts, and you don't have any willpower, and I'm going to have to give you some help. And he wrote me a prescription for 60 of the most beautiful capsules I've ever seen in my life called Nembudons. And I said, well, doctor, if I take him as hard to drink a couple of beers, and he said, I don't think it'll hurt you. You never should have told me that. So I went home to the little druggist and got my prescription filled, went to my house to lose weight and stay drunk. Well, I looked at the prescription that says, take one three times a day after meals. Well, who eats when you drink? And everybody knows, and every drunk knows, if one's good, two's better, three's terrific. So I just took three of them beauties and drank some whiskey. Didn't feel like I was losing any weight. Took three more of them, drank some more whiskey. Ran in the bathroom, turned sideways, looked in the mirror. Didn't look like I was losing any weight. Come back out and took a handful of them. Like, and drank some more whiskey. Looked like my stomach's getting big. You know, our co-founder, Bill, wrote some very prophetic lines when he said, When a drunk is drinking, it's time out of mind. Time passes so slow when we're drinking. And, Bill, the only sad thing i found about Alcoholics Anonymous is time passes so fast sober. Where does it go? And finally, I took all the pills and drank all the whiskey. And the next thing I knew, I was out in my backyard and I was picking peaches off of rose bushes. I don't mind telling you. And they tell me I ran around that little town of 3,500 for two days talking in the unknown tongue, you know. And being one or two Jewish families in five counties around, they gathered everybody in to see and hear the miracle. Because word had spread like wildfire. The Jew had caught the Holy Ghost, you know. (laughs) 
And when I come to it and realize what happened, I said, my God, those pills are messed up my drinking, you know? <laughs> and, you know, little things like that to ruin your image in town. I decided I was going to get drunk. Well, I didn't decide I was going to get drunk, you know? And, and courtesy of a couple of pecs, pecs, uh, a couple of hot checks and got me two peck sacks full of whiskey. And off I'm driving 284 miles from Panhandle West Texas down to Dallas. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of them kind when you drink, you know. You drive with one hand, take that whiskey bottle, take that sack, peel it down like a banana, knock the cork off, use your thumb for a cork, and just go ahead and drink. And I love country western music, you know. And my favorite radio uh, station in them days was Del Rio, Texas, where they sold Bibles and crosses and chains and rejuvenation powders and posters and lotions post office box. And oh, they used to play the finest tunes in the world, you know. Don't wink them bloodshot eyes at me. <laughs> and here's one that's good for 11 months of drinking and 14 months of crying. Only God made honky-tonk angels, you know. <laughs> and I'm drinking and I'm driving and I'm a-singing, you know. And next thing I know, I'm sitting in the chair and I got a belt around me. And, and I got on just a shirt and a pair of breeches and no socks and darn alligator shoes. And people with fur hats and coats, and they're half of them talking in French. And, you know, if there's one thing a drinking drunk ain't going to do, he's not going to ask where he is when he doesn't know where he is. <laughs> and finally a voice says, we're getting, put on your seat, buckle your seatbelt, we're getting, land, getting ready to land in Calgary, Alberta. 2,800 miles from Dallas, Texas. And I, to this day, I don't know. And I said, oh, I played it this time. I said, but when the plane lands, I'll hide under the seat. And I'll leave with the plane, but they don't, they, no, they flush you out like quail from the back, you know. And this is back in the days before they had uh, jetways. You had to go down the ladder, and you go down to clear immigration and customs. And I said, I'll be the last one, and I'll run out on the field and escape. But no, they locked the door behind me, and everybody clears immigration and customs except me. And that man said to me, and I don't know about you, but when I used to put on that act, when I wanted, you know, sympathy, and I wanted people to love me, put my hand in my pocket... Drop my eye and I'd saunter. And he said, let me have your papers. And I said, mister, I don't even have a ticket. <laughs> he said, you don't have a ticket? I said, no, sir. He said, how did you get on the airplane? I said, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> you don't have a ticket? I said, no, search me. He said, where are you from? I said, the United States of America. <laughs> he said, where do you live in the United States of America? I said, Memphis, Texas. He says, where were you born in the United States of America? I said, Dallas, Texas. He said, do you have... No, I, nothing. He says, what's your full name? I said, David Henry Aronofsky. He said, can you prove it? I said, mister, with a name like that, you don't have to prove it. <laughs> oh, I know what's coming next. The call to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the call to the Red Cross, the call to the Daddy. I guess I'm the only member of Alcoholics Anonymous in this meeting right now that called everyone to that. You know. We finally had to move away from that little town start all over again. I'm taking me with me, and oh, we had a tremendous opportunity, but I'm taking me with me, and I finally end up on that last skid row. All hope gone. I'm back down drinking wine, sleeping in 55-cent-night hotel rooms, shoes tied around your neck. I went home once the last nine months I was drank. Grace talked about it today. Where she sat down, she said, I don't care who you drink with, what you do anymore. It's gone. I went home once, hoping that maybe she'd find, because you see, no one knew where I was, and yet Grace, all she had to do was look out the west window of her office, one and a half blocks due west. 
because she went to work for the people that I started working with and drinking with when I was young, up to ten and a half years of age, a place she hated with every fiber of her being. And all she had to do was look out that west window of her office, one and a half block due west, see me fall out of that wine hotel. And I'd crawl under those 18-wheelers and under those docks looking for Grace. It's the only woman I've ever loved in my life. And she was the mother of those two little boys, and she was the father of those two little boys, and she was their Santa Claus, and she took them to Little League. I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to. And I went home, and she looked at me, and she says, Do you have to drink and do the things that you do? And I guess it's the only time I told her the truth. I said, Grace, I cannot stop drinking. I'm going to die drunk. Why don't you find another man that'll marry you? You're such a fine lady that'll be a good husband to you and a good father to those two little boys. I cannot function as a husband. I cannot function as a father. I can't function as a professional man. I don't want to live anymore. And I took my bottle and I went out. Because I had condemned my own self and my own mind that I was hopeless and helpless. Did you listen very carefully what that beautiful Alanon read in the first preface? There were over a hundred men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. But at that time, to me, it wasn't seemingly. It was hopeless. And it was helpless. And it was useless. And I tried to kill myself. And I had to get sober to find out that I didn't die drunk and I was left for the members of Alcoholics Anonymous try to salvage me. Because to me, it was a seemingly, it was seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Somewhere along the line, on April 18th, 1960, found a handwriting on the floor of the county jail there in Dallas. I've been in lots of jails. And incidentally, being in jail is not a requirement for membership in alcoholic knowledge. <laughs> By this time, I got to the point in my life where I couldn't stay sober and I couldn't stay drunk and couldn't kill myself and couldn't stay alive. And I screamed out on that jail floor, my God, is there any help for me? And something within me said, Listen, you overeducated, pompous, egotistical, and small little drunk until you stop drinking, nobody can help you, not even me. Which has meant to me that I was the one that had to stop drinking. And I said, If I ever get out of this jail, I'm going to look up those folks in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, over 35 years ago, a group of fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous who could see in me what I could not see in myself. They're like our co founder Bill when he was running around the Mayflower Hotel in 1935. Right before he made the call on 4A, got started, not knowing whether to go into the bar to listen to the music, the ice, the tinkling, the conversation, or talk to another drunk. It was not important that Bill talk to another alcoholic to try to carry the message. It was important that Bill talk to another alcoholic so Bill would stay sober. And this is what those alcoholics were doing for their sobriety over 35 years ago. But they stuck a needle in me that after I'd exhausted all alternatives, it's just AA, AA, AA. And how I got by that old sheriff, I don't know. When I got out, I found the gal, Edith, who asked me to come to that meeting. She had passed away, but she was continuously sober. I heard that Moena moved away. I used to see Moena every Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock as my manicure. She's retired. And last May the 24th of this year, Moena celebrated her 36th continuous sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a man at that meeting. He was sober eight years. He drank eight years. And this last May the 22nd, he celebrated his 20th continuous sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous this spring. And I called him up, and he wanted to know who is it for. And I told him it's me. He said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow night. Let's just go and get it over with. Don't you take a drink of alcohol today and call me in the morning. And that's all he told me. And after 36 and a half years of giving it the best shot, cold turkey, 
Well, it's more like frozen buzzard if you want to know the I started walking and shaking out a drunk. But when I come to the next morning, I was sober, and I didn't have a belly full of tranquilizers, nor did I have a prescription for 500 more. And for this, I am so thankful. It's the kind of sobering up you don't hear much in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. And it's the best way I can describe that kind of sobering up. You know, it's just like a natural childbirth without any anesthetic. It hurts like the dickens, but you sure got a wide-awake baby. I don't mind that. And I called him again, and he said, Are you drinking? And I says, No. He says, don't you take a drink and call me at 3.30 this afternoon. Start that walking, shaking. Called him 3.30 in the afternoon. Are you drinking? And he said, no. And he said, do you really want to come to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Well, by this time, I'm willing to crawl through six feet of snow naked just to see what kind of people you were that had this insatiable desire not to drink alcohol. He said, do you want me to come get you? And being about as humble as Hitler, I said, I'll get there under my own steam. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, when you turn the corner, there's a whiskey store on the left, a beer joint on the right. Don't you stop buying and consuming the alcohol, because when I get out there, I'm going to search you and I'm going to smell you. And you, David, you cannot come to Alcoholics Anonymous drinking or drunk. Now, I know that's not standard principles in AA, but you see, he was there at that birthday party (laughs) 35 years ago, and he didn't want no part of that, but not me drunk. And but I was in he hung up when I was in a terrible predicament. I heard the grace had thrown out all my clothes, and because when I got out of jail the last time, and I'd been in it for about three months, all I had was a pair of thermal underwear with all my possessions in my pocket. An old gray pair of, 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 of uh, and an old pair of, uh, pair of, of gray clown breeches, and uh, an old gray sweater with the elbows out of my elbows. No socks, but I still hadn't quite lost everything yet. I had a pair of beat-up old alligator shoes. And the only money I had was 30 cents, and that was all that was left in the last blood I'd sold to blood bank to buy wine. And when you get to AA, and they say, you ain't doing too well. So I called her up, and she hadn't heard from me from that time. That one time I went home, and she said, who is it? I said, me. She said, what do you want? I said, Grace, do you happen to have one of my old suits? And she says, yes, I have one, and it's to bury it. As I look back now, I then ask her the most foolish question I've ever asked her in my life. I said, do you mind if I borrow it for a little while? <laughs> I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, it's another one of your lies. And hung up. And that suit's a story in itself. Still got it. She can't get it away from me. And I put it on and I bid she and the young and goodbye and, and got in a Mustang that the bank was looking to repossess it but couldn't recognize it. It looked like an accordion. Now, when I come in and told them I'm going to A, there wasn't instant joy. God, no. Everything I looked at, breathed at, or on, or, or in, everything I touched, everything I come by, she'd spray. Everywhere. And I bid them goodbye, and I went out to the meeting. And I walked in, and it looked like the same people that were there 17 years earlier were there. And one of them was grinning, and he said, We knew you'd be back. <laughs> And now I'm going to tell you about the greatest AA talk I've ever heard in my life. And alcoholics, now, we don't have any speakers. We're just a bunch of talkers. Ours is the language of the heart. And I've been privileged to hear our co-founder Bill in person and many tremendous fine talkers in alcoholics and all. But this is the greatest AA talk I've ever heard, and if you haven't heard it in your group, your group has cheated you. There's a man who used to stand at the door and greet all the new people. I come in, I grabbed his hand, mine was wet, his was dry, mine slipped away, I had to grab it again. Here comes the greatest day talk I've ever heard. This man then said to me, welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee. 
we understand exactly how you feel. He didn't say to me, you never should have done those things. He didn't say to me, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have done those things. He just simply said, welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. It was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anybody shook my hand. It was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anybody said welcome instead of leave. It's the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anybody invited me to come in. It was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anybody asked me to share anything with them. And the first time in my last 17 years of my drinking anybody said sit down. And it was certainly the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anybody said we understand exactly how you feel. And when the AA meeting got started, it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anybody asked me to sit with them. And I'm sitting, and I'm still shaking, and I'm vibrating, and my knees are going up and down, and I'm going like this. And the drunks would put their hands on my knees, and they'd grab my arm and hand, and they'd say, easy does it. First things first. You're in the right place. And when the meeting was over with, it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone asked me to stand and pray with them. And I did not know the Lord's Prayer. And no one called me a heathen. And no one called me an atheist. And no one called me an agnostic. And no one called me a dummy. And after the meeting was over with, it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anybody put their arm around me and said, we loved you. And they hugged me and they kissed me. And as I got ready to leave, it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that those people said, we need you and you need us. You know, we are normally people who would not mix, but there exists among us a friendliness and an understanding that's indescribably wonderful. And now for a few, very few short moments, tell you how it is today. Little did I realize when I got to you people that Grace and our two sons would ever been under one roof again. Because that marriage had no right to be. It had been written off by everything and everybody, including us. But only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life, and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon in Grace's life. That beautiful and wonderful lady this past June the 10th, which was AA's 50th anniversary, Grace and I celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary. Now, I wasn't there all those years. <laughs> and that's pretty good for a drunk. Now, I'm not going to tell you because I'm in AA and she's in al that our marriage is just perfect, that the bluebirds are flying around, that the butterflies are hugging and kissing and cooing and winking. Heck no. We have a few short rounds every now and then. We have a few long rounds every now and then. That's what you call communicating. And the best way I can describe our marriage today is built on solid, constructive imperfection because it's by our imperfections that we grow. And anyway, Grace goes full five Al Anon meetings a week, and I go to six MA meetings a week. We don't see each other enough for all that nitpicking, arguing, fighting, fussing. Our two sons are grown men today. Grace talked a lot about them. And the oldest one, when he was 15 years of age, he had a butcher knife in my breastbone. And he was going to kill me for what I was doing to their mother. And if I could have gotten up off the floor, I'd have beat him to death. The wildness left his eyes, and he turned around, he dropped that knife, and he spat in my face, and he says, You're no longer my father, and I'm no longer your son. And he walked out of my life, and that hurts but only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon, this family, living what we call the spiritual principle living in Alcoholics Anonymous, today, as a result of the principles of the program in the entire family, I don't know about anybody else's family, today I have not only a wonderful father and son relationship with the two sons, but more important, we're the best of friends. 
I don't know about anybody else's family, what we call spiritual principle living. That's allowing every member of the family to be ourselves as we are with all of our pet imperfections, with all of our defects in character, and allowing every member of the family the dignity and the freedom to make our own mistakes and to be ourselves. You see, if I hadn't been free to make my mistakes, I never would have found you. And when I found you, what would you tell me? David, if you don't take the first drink of alcohol, there is no way in the world you'd get drunk. And what's the first question I ask you? But how do you live with that alcohol? And you said, if, David, if you decide you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And in taking the steps in sequence before I was halfway through the ninth step, I too suddenly realized that this God that you said that could and would was suddenly doing for me what I could not possibly do for myself. And if I hadn't been free to make my own mistakes and free to find people who had made the same mistakes but more important, were not making the same mistakes anymore because they had found a solution to live and not relive those mistakes over and over and over again. And I would have missed the whole deal. When I got sober, I had to go before the licensing agency that licensed my profession. And I had they were going to remove it for the rest of my life, not give me a vacation. And I had to go tell them the truth, what it did. And they allowed me to go back to work. And so you see, and all this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the words of our co-founder, Bill, ours is not a personal success story, but one of colossal human failure, converted into great strength by the alchemy of the living grace of God, as expressed through the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous and our fellowship therein. So you see, only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a sober life today. Only because of God's grace through the miracle of the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a God today. A God of my very own. A God that I found through the 12 steps of the big book and through you people and from nowhere else. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a family that loves and respects me. I have a roof over my head. I have hundreds of thousands of friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, al and the world in which we all live. I have the best way to make a living I've ever had in my life. I have a few dollars in my pocket and a few dollars in the bank. Very, very few. I have two cars with gasoline in them, I hope. I have, two nice, I have some nice clothes today, reasonably nice clothes. And I have meat in the refrigerator and groceries in the pantry. And I'll tell you a little secret. If you want anything any more than that, you either oversexed or plumb nuts. <laughs> I'd like to leave you with something. Framed on our archive walls in our general service office is a letter that was written on the last 30th day of December 1946 to our co-founder Bill by a gentleman whose family name is perhaps the world's most famous in oil and energy and banking and finance and foundations and real estate corporations that the world has ever known. This particular member of that family loved Alcoholics Anonymous more than life itself. A non-alcoholic who gave to A, if it hadn't been for him, our big book never would have been printed. And he wrote a letter thanking Bill for a wartime edition of the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those who have never seen it, they had to cut the sides down and do the paper shorts. And the first paragraph has to deal with that, but I'd like to now to tell you what's in the remaining part of the letter. And it goes as this, to Bill. It must be of the greatest satisfaction of you to realize that the helping hand that you extended to a needy brother many years ago has resulted in the widespread extension of that brotherly act. The regenerating power of the spirit of that helping hand has been the means by which countless thousands of lives have been saved that otherwise would have been wrecked. May God bless you 
and continue to use you ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. If there is a prayer, if there is a wish that I have for all of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, we're all here as a result of the revitalizing and the regenerating power of the Spirit as a result of that helping hand from Bill to Dr. Bob. However, let's not forget a little drunk that carried the message to Bill. That was Bill's friend and co-sponsor, Abby Thatcher. Abby died sober. Abby carried the message to Bill. That is what's so important is the message. It's the message. It's the message. We're all here as a result, basically, of Abby to Bill to Dr. Bob to Bill Dotson, and here we are right now. And as I said, may if we have a wish, if I have a wish or a prayer, that we continue to let God bless us and use us ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. And how will he continue to bless us and use us as his chosen is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. God bless each and every one of you, and I love you so much, and thank you.